a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. From the Gospel according to St. Luke, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. On this particular Sunday in which we prepare to begin a Holy Lent on Wednesday, with Ash Wednesday, we first ascend the mountain of transfiguration. Just as Jesus led Peter, James, and John up on the mountain to be transfigured before them, just before leading them to Jerusalem, where he would be tried, crucified, and buried in a tomb, the church first contemplates this vision the disciples have of the manifest glory of Christ. This is, in effect, a final bookend to the season of Epiphany, Jesus showing forth his divine glory. That's what Epiphany is all about, is this showing forth of God. The Apostle Peter would later write of this event, the Transfiguration, for when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. It is on this basis, the basis of the Lord's manifestation of himself on that holy mountain, that Peter says he has made known the power and coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is on this basis that he says he is an eyewitness of Jesus' majesty. You'll note that the reading today begins by saying that the event of the transfiguration takes place eight days after Peter had acknowledged Jesus as the Christ. Some say that he comes to faith, and having come to faith, he is baptized in the glory of God, almost like a circumcision on the eighth day God revealing his glory, and indeed unmasking or uncovering Peter. I find that rather wonderful and fanciful and good. But if you read 2 Peter, you see that Peter does not look upon his confession as the major moment, but upon the transfiguration. He doesn't say, I figured it out one day. I figured out that Jesus is the Christ. Isn't that cool? No, he says, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. We saw him un- revealing, unsheathing his glory. Likewise, John writes in the opening sentences of his first epistle, and I think he's talking about the transfiguration here, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, this life was made manifest. And we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you. And John's message, which he's proclaiming to his people, is simple, that God is light. You hear that? It's not like, oh, he's not talking about the incarnation here. He's saying that God is light. That's his testimony. And in him there is no darkness at all. One of my favorite authors puts it this way. In him there ain't no darkness. There is actually a double negative in the Greek, and it's for that effect. 
The testimony of the apostles is clear that the God that they were taught to believe in throughout their lives, a good and holy God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who is constantly about the work of saving his people, a God who is completely and utterly good, who is indeed goodness himself, that this God has made himself manifest in Jesus Christ, whom they came to know, and that it was this glorious Jesus who manifested his glory who was crucified and risen in order to cast out the works of darkness to defeat death. The amazing thing about the apostolic witness is that the apostles saw no contradiction between Jesus transfigured before them, showing forth his glory on that holy mountain, showing forth his radiant light, and Jesus crucified, brutally deprived of life and breath, bloodied and even dehumanized. This was, of course, scandalous to many. The ancient heretics could never reconcile in their minds that these were one and the same, the God of light and glory and the God of the cross. The scandal of the cross was so scandalous for the docetists that they held that Jesus merely appeared to suffer and die. And that, by the way, was later picked up by Muhammad and Islam. It's written right into the Quran that Jesus merely appeared to die. Many of the Gnostics believed that the crucifixion was some sort of cosmic hoax just to kind of tick off the demiurge. Others never even mention the cross. The Gospel of Thomas, for instance, doesn't even mention the cross. It's too scandalous. But this is the apostolic witness that God is light that in him there is no darkness, that he has shown forth his glory in the face of Jesus, whether that face is shining with transfigured glory or bloodied and in agony for the sins of the world. Furthermore, the apostles knew that this Jesus was not some kind of aberrant departure from the Old Testament witness, but rather in continuity with the law and the prophets, shown here by the presence of Moses and Elijah, who speak together of his coming death at Jerusalem. They had not seen Zeus or some kind of demigod. They had seen the God of Israel in the flesh, born in a full human nature, transfigured before them. If anything, what we see is not continuity between Jesus and the law, or mere continuity between Jesus and the law and the prophets, but that the obscurity of these two passes away. Basil the Great says in a wonderful line that this is what happens on that mountain. The obscurity of the law or the obscurity of the source of the law had passed away. For as smoke is caused by the fire, so the cloud by light. In essence, he means that just as the cloud had covered the giving of the law in Exodus, now we see the true source of that cloud unveiled before the disciples' eyes. And then, of course, the cloud comes back. What had caused the radiance of the face of Moses but the radiance and glory of Christ? What had caused the prophetic word to be spoken and written? Peter tells us that the prophetic word has been made more sure because we were with him on the holy mountain. The preeminence of Christ is seen in this event in all things whether it be the giving of the law or creation or smoke or fire or a mountain or whatever it may be. Yet this radiance, this glory are not to us what we would expect. 
The disciples, as opposed to being deeply energized by this radiant vision, I mean, have you ever spoken of a mountaintop experience? No, I used to go to retreats for this. This is a mountaintop experience, and you gotta go take this mountaintop experience down the mountain to those people out there. I always thought that was sort of cheesy, and now I know why. The disciples, as opposed to being deeply energized by this radiant vision, become heavy with sleep. They see the vision, and they basically pass out. And Ambrose says of this, that the incomprehensible magnificence of the Godhead overwhelms the perceptions of the body. The sharpness of bodily vision cannot bear the ray of the sun directly into watching eyes. I mean, you ever go to an eclipse and watch an eclipse, you're always told, don't look at the sun, it'll burn your eyes. My parents used to do this. If you're a good parent, you'll do that too. You cannot see it directly. It's too much. And Peter, upon waking, says, he says this, can we keep looking, please? He doesn't say that. He says, let's build some booths, maybe to shade them from the light. But what he's really saying is, let's have a festival of booths, this old Jewish festival where the people would build booths outside their houses to remind them of living in booths in the desert at the base of the mountain of Sinai when the law was given. This is a law-giving, beer-drinking festival, essentially. Sounds like fun, actually. But we see that the type is not lost on Peter. He knows what this is. He knows that this is a reenactment of Sinai. But he presumes too much that he will be able to endure this continued vision of the Lord's glory by his own might, in his mortal body. And so immediately after he suggests, you know, let's build some booths here, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah, a cloud covers the mountain to cover his sight. And the disciples, we're told, are afraid. As I mentioned before, the source of the cloud cannot be anything but the fire of divine glory and love in Jesus. The transfiguration of Jesus is clearly something that continues on for much longer than a moment, but it is obscured by the cloud. It could have gone on for some time, but all that Peter, James, and John see is a slight revealing of this slight moment of his glory before the cloud comes, but that was enough for them. I think of what Paul would later write. Now we see in a mirror dimly but then face to face. The disciples remembered this face-to-face vision of the glory of Jesus. But imagine for a moment the fear they felt as they entered that cloud. These were Jewish men who knew the Scriptures, and they knew that they had entered into the very presence of God, and not any presence, but the presence of God and the man they had known for three whole years, Jesus They knew that to enter the presence of God was, at the same time, a thing of fear, a thing which would bring trembling, as well as a thing which would bring joy. What they are experiencing is the renewed presence of God in the land of his people and among his people, a presence that had gone away for hundreds of years. And let me say, it is a fearful thing when heaven and earth meet. 
when God's time and ours are intertwined, when the new creation intersects with the creation as we know it. That's made abundant in the icon. Do you see this? These two squares, one turned, this is to signify the meeting of heaven and earth, to show God's time intersecting with our time. And in it, we catch a glimpse, not of how things are, but of how things will be. But the rest is hidden from our eyes. The disciples knew in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, that what they had been made for was the vision of Jesus. That what their future glory would be by the grace of Jesus is the very vision of the glory of God. Life lived in his consuming glory. But for now, you have to live in a cloud. (laughs) For now, you have to live with an obscured vision. For now, we even have to live with things like sacraments. But there will come a day when sacraments will cease. There will come a day when our vision is not delighted by the things it's delighted by now. And as all of this is happening, and as the cloud covers the disciples, we hear this voice of God from the cloud. This is my son, my chosen. Listen to him. At the Lord's baptism in the Jordan, in this same gospel, in the opening chapters, we hear this voice from heaven had said directly to Jesus, you are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. And now the voice turns to the disciples. This is my son, my chosen. Listen to him. This subtle change indicates that the testimony of the Father is turning from a testimony to the Son to a testimony to the world concerning the Son, made through the witness of the apostles. Many commentators have noticed this subtle shift, but it is the shift at the heart of the Gospels. It is a shift from the Old Testament to the New, from the Old Covenant to the New. It's a shift from a witness that is best called centripetal, which if you know the difference in any physics majors out here, is when when objects spinning around tend towards the center, to a witness that is centrifugal, like mud flying off tires. Inertia is being given to these disciples to become apostles who are sent out into the world with this message, this message of the glory of God in Jesus. And they are sent out from this message, from this vision of Jesus in witness to the nations. And the witness is that Jesus is the Christ, the one continually chosen by the Father, continually begotten, and that to see him is to see the Father. At the end of this, we read that the disciples didn't speak of what they had seen when they come down from that mountain. No doubt this is not because they didn't want to. I mean, if it were me, I'd say, hey, guys, hey, guys, you'll never believe what just happened. This is amazing. But they don't do it. Why don't they do it? Who can witness something so amazing and keep quiet about it? I suspect two reasons. The first reason is that they would have had a fear of not being believed. Who would have believed it? 
Who would have believed that their friends had witnessed a more powerful vision of God than Moses himself? That they had come down that mountain and seen the very vision of the glory of God and their faces didn't glow? I mean, Moses is buried somewhere in the land. Elijah has been taken up into heaven and now they're up on this mountain? Who can believe that? It's too much. I suspect the other reason is that they actually took this testimony of God from the cloud seriously to listen. For at the vision of God, all voices go silent. At the heart of the Christian life of meditation and contemplation is silence. And I, I, it's not my favorite hymn, but let all mortal flesh keep silence gets it right. And with fear and trembling stand. Ponder nothing earthly minded. When these disciples heard this word, they could not talk of it. It was too much. They held it in their hearts. They meditated upon this. And they meditated upon it as they saw. In John's case, we saw with his own eyes the Lord being ripped apart on the cross, laid in a tomb. They contemplated this as they saw the resurrection. And they probably contemplated this on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit sends them out into the world with this wonderful and life-giving message. This revealing of the glory of Jesus was and is a permanent fixture in the church's witness because it shows forth the future for the Christian. Indeed, it shows forth what it means to be made in the image of God. I've said before, it means that we're made to be like Jesus, continually beholding the face of the Father. That we were made to be a people who behold the very face of God without cloud, without smoke, without being dimly seen, but fully, clearly, and eternally. This vision rightly brings you and I to silence at the word of God made manifest in Jesus. Silence is the stuff of Lent. (laughs) Not talking, not praying out loud, but silence. And my prayer for you this Lent is that you would find time and space for silent meditation on the glory and person of Jesus And that meeting him in this silence, you would go forth animated with joy at his presence. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.